Hi, and welcome to the Magical History Tour podcast. I'm Hollis, your tour guide, and in this episode, we're still looking a little bit at the Revolutionary War. We'll visit the Loyalists and talk about why they might not have supported the Patriot cause, as well as take a quick look at the most famous or infamous Loyalist, Benedict Arnold. We'll see how one state accidentally gave women the right to vote, and we'll take a peek at setting up our first constitution, the Articles of Confederation. So let's get started. The war divided families, friends, towns, and cities. Benjamin Franklin's illegitimate son happened to be the royal governor of New Jersey, but he sided with the Loyalists and was later cut out of Franklin's will because of it. Not all Americans were patriots, and they couldn't necessarily be relied upon to support the cause. About one-fifth of the population remained loyal to the British crown. That's about half a million people. And at the end of the war, as many as 100,000 Americans, that's like one in 30, left their native home to go back to England or move to the West Indies or went to Canada. They called themselves loyalists because they were loyal to the king. But the patriots called them Tories. Now they get the name Tory from the popular name of the Conservative Party in England. The Conservative Party in England traditionally supported the authority of the king over parliament. They thought that the king should have more power than parliament. Now a lot of slaves and most of the native tribes will identify with the loyalists. The native tribes because they feared aggressive expansion by independent states. They thought, well, gosh, if Britain's not there to stop them, they don't do a great job anyway, but if they're not there, what's going to stop those states from continuing to take our land? The slaves, because they were promised freedom in return for military service with the British. But you did have as many as about 5,000 Africans who did serve on the American side. Now, the Iroquois nation will split on the decision. The Oneida and Tuscarora tribes will support the Patriots. The Senecas, Mohawks, and Cayugas were persuaded that their lands would be safer if the British prevailed. So the revolution, our Revolutionary War, marks the end of the longest-lasting confederacy among North American Indians. Now, many of the Loyalists were afraid of too much democracy. That's why they sided with England. They weren't sure. They thought democracy would be kind of chaotic. Reverend Mather Biles, he was a Massachusetts congregational minister that opposed the revolution. And in a sermon in 1776, he expressed his fears of democracy, which sort of echoed a lot of other people's. He said, which is better, to be ruled by one tyrant 3,000 miles away or by 3,000 tyrants not a mile away? So he basically felt like, you know, England's way over there. They don't bother us that much. Let's just not rock the boat. Now, loyalists were punished by the Patriots in several ways during the war. For one thing, they'll pass state treason acts. Lots of different states will pass these treason acts that prohibited speaking or writing anything against the revolution. Also, they'll issue something called bills of attainder. Bills of attainder, it turns out to be a legal process by which the loyalists will lose their civil rights and their property. So they can lose their property just because they agreed with the wrong side. Now, of course, we say, ah, this is the United States. We don't believe in that. You can believe whatever you want. Well, it was later made illegal by the Constitution, but it wasn't at the time. In some areas, loyalists also face mob violence, tarring and feathering. They run people out of town, all sorts of things. So now the most famous, or like I said, infamous supporter of the British was Benedict Arnold. He actually started out as a hero on the American side in the early battles of the revolution. But in 1779, he becomes a paid informer 
of General Henry Clinton, who was head of the British Army in New York City. Now, Benedict Arnold did this mainly because he had grown angry and a little resentful about what he perceived to be assignments and rank that were below his station. So he decided, well, I'll side with the British. They'll pay me more. They'll give me a better rank. In 1780, his plot to betray the strategic post of West Point, which he commanded, was uncovered by the Patriots, and he runs away. He runs to the British for help. They paid him quite a bit of money. He basically, though, becomes the most hated man in America. A lot of people like to gripe about what was going on. There's a story about some men who actually deserted the Continental Army, and they were running away, and they ran into a couple of British who were, you know, had a fire going and were eating, and they were sitting around the campfire, and everything was going okay, and they told them, yeah, we just deserted, we're leaving, they don't, they aren't paying us, it's freezing, we we need to go home, whatever. And the British offered to, hey, you know, come on our side, we'll pay you, we'll get you a uniform, and you'll have warm boots, and you know, that sort of thing, if you'll just join our side. And the guys who were Continental Army deserters were so offended that these men thought they would turn on the Patriot cause that they killed them. (laughs) So yeah, we will run away, we will desert, but we're not going to turn on the cause. That's kind of the attitude. So people hated Benedict Arnold. In the last two years of the war, he also actually led British raids against his home state as well as against Virginia. And after the revolution, he'll end up eventually moving back to England, where he wasn't really well liked there either. Most Americans, though, were ethnically and culturally British. Also, the states had no institutional links with one another prior to the revolution. Their only political links had bound them to the mother country. Consequently, a sense of American nationhood is very slow to take shape. So the first American constitution, which is the Articles of Confederation, didn't really create a nation or a nationality. Each state, though joined together to fight the British, remained completely independent of the others. And we'll see how that works out. Now, the American revolutionaries embraced what we call a Republican ideology over a monarchical outlook that dominated Europe. Now, this isn't the same thing as your Republicans and Democrats today, so take that out of the equation right now. But a Republican ideology rather than a monarchical outlook, the monarchs that dominated Europe. America is not going to be a direct democracy as ancient Greece had been, where every single, every citizen could vote on all major decisions affecting society. Instead, we will be what is called a representative democracy. And that's where property holding white men govern themselves through a concept of republicanism, where you elect representatives to make key decisions on your behalf. So it's better than a monarchy because there was a lot more transparency. Thomas Paine will write about it. Whatever are its excellencies and defects, they are visible to all. So it's the idea that we're going to be a transparent government, we're going to have a representative democracy, and everyone will be represented. Just as an aside, a lot of times in today's political climate, you have people who say things like, oh, we aren't a democracy, we're a republic. Okay, we are a republic and we are a democracy. Neither one of those things really have anything to do with the political parties that are there today. So we are a republic and we are a representative democracy. So just FYI, letting you know that. 
The constitutions of 11 of the 13 states were drawn up in the midst of the war against Britain. Not surprisingly, these frames of government consciously and specifically reflected the anti-British sentiments of the rebels. The most obvious break with the British past being the fact that the first American constitutions were written down and comprehensive. They covered every contingency that the authors could foresee because the British constitution had been unwritten it was set up like a bunch of different things that make it up, but there's not an actual British constitution. So that unwritten British constitution had served that nation well enough, and it does so to this day. But the lack of definition of Parliament's powers in black and white was very central to American grievances with the mother country, because the Patriots believed that Parliament had violated unwritten tradition in trying to tax them, but they couldn't prove it without resorting to force of arms. Now, written constitutions can also obviously be violated as well, but at least there is a written text to refer to and to remind people. You can pick it up and say, hey, you signed this. It says here you can't do that. So they wanted it to be written out. Each of the states will adopt constitutions between 1776 and 1780 while the war was happening, and they were all over the place politically. One example, Pennsylvania will institute a radical democracy. On the other end of the spectrum, Maryland will create a really conservative set of institutions that are designed to keep citizens and rulers as far apart as possible. And then New York was sort of in the middle. But one very important innovation in the state constitutions was a guarantee of rights. Now it was copied from the Virginia Declaration of Rights, and it was written by George Mason. And among other things, the 15 rights declared that, number one, so, well, not specifically in any order, sovereignty rested in the people, government is the servant of the people, the people had the right to reform, alter, or abolish the government, it guaranteed due process, trial by jury in criminal cases, it prohibited excessive bail, and cruel and unusual punishments. Now, is this sounding familiar? Freedom of the press and religion will be guaranteed as well in a lot of these state constitutions. Now, eight state constitutions will declare similar rights to the Virginia Constitution, and they added some things. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly were added in several of them. Petition for redress of grievances and other things that had been left out of the Virginia Declaration. So these state declarations really become an important precedent for the Bill of Rights, which will come later and be our first 10 amendments. Other reforms were brewing as as well. The New Jersey Constitution granted the vote to, quote, all free inhabitants who met the property requirements, and they end up accidentally enfranchising some women as well as men, and some African-American men who owned property and were free. So they didn't think anything about it at first because there weren't very many women who owned property there, and there weren't very many African-American men, but gradually that will change, and the number of women voters eventually lead to male protests and a law that specifically limited the right to vote to free white male citizens. So New Jersey didn't mean to be quite as forward-thinking just yet. Now women's participation in the revolution does change things for them. There's going to be evidence of increasing sympathy in courts for women's property rights and fairer treatment of women's petitions for divorce. There were also more opportunities for women seeking an education after the war. Still though, they won't get any political voting rights or any 
anything resembling equality except for the brief voting in, in New Jersey for a really, really long time. Now for African Americans, the war wasn't all that much to celebrate because the war will perpetuate slavery. Many African fighters and their families will leave with the loyalists and the British at the end of the war. They'll settle in the West Indies, Canada, some will go back to Africa, go to Britain. Most were actually fugitive slaves rather than committed loyalists. And Virginia and South Carolina, Virginia supposedly lost about 30,000 slaves and South Carolina about 25,000 slaves after the war. A lot of people in the colonies felt that it was contradictory to wage a war for liberty while continuing to support slavery. Kind of hypocritical. So slavery is going to be first abolished in the state constitution of Vermont in 1777. Massachusetts and New Hampshire will follow in 1780 and 1784. Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Rhode Island will adopt systems of what they call gradual emancipation during this time. That's basically freeing the children of slaves at birth. So like if you were a slave, you stayed a slave, but if you had kids, they would be free. So you aren't perpetuating the line of slaves for a family. Gradual emancipation was fairly popular in certain places. Now by 1804, every northern state had provided for abolition or gradual emancipation. Although even as late as 1810, you still had about 30,000 enslaved African in the north. In the upper south, you had several things that combined to weaken the commitment of a lot of the planters to the slave system. For one thing, you still have that revolutionary idealism that was strong. People pointed out, hey, this is hypocritical. Also, you have the idea of Christian equality that the Methodists and Baptists will put out. And you then have the shift also, which was probably the primary thing because it was economics and economics tends to run a lot of things. <laughs> but the shift from tobacco farming to cultivating things like wheat and corn, which weren't as intensive labor-wise, will also help to change the Upper South's idea of we have to have slaves all the time. So there was an increase in grants of freedom to slaves by individual masters. It was known as manumissions. A slave owner might decide, I'm going to free all my slaves, and he does, he gives them their freedom. There was a small movement also to encourage gradual emancipation by trying to convince owners to free their slaves in their wills at the very least. So in the Upper South, you did have some freeing of slaves. It wasn't any kind of law. They didn't pass anything saying uh, we're going to be a free state, nothing like that. But you had a little bit more freedom happening in the Upper South. Planters in the Lower South, on the other hand, were very dependent on slave labor and they resisted any urge people may have had to end slavery. Between 1776 and 1786, a 10-year period, every single state except for South Carolina and Georgia will either prohibit or heavily tax the international slave trade. They wanted to get rid of the international slave trade, bringing more slaves over. And so they will either prohibit it completely or they'll heavily tax it so as to sort of deter people from buying slaves from out of the country. So the slave issue is going to be a big deal at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. But all of these things, the freeings of a lot of slaves in the North, the freedom of some of the slaves in the Upper South, things like that, all of these things will lead to the growth of a free African-American population, which went from maybe a few thousand in 1750 to over 200,000 by the end of the century. Now, the motion for independence by Richard Henry Lee called for a confederation of the states. And so the Articles of Confederation is the first written constitution of the United States. It creates a 
national government, but harshly limited its powers. And that's mainly because people were really concerned that they would end up with a coercive central government, just like the one they got rid of, the monarchy. They don't want another king. They don't want a government telling them what to do. They just finished fighting to free themselves from a government that was, to them, kind of in their business all the time and taxing them all the time. They don't want to move directly into the same thing. So the Articles of Confederation is really not much more than an alliance of independent states that had a common problem, which at the time was a bunch of redcoats they were fighting. It's not until 1787 that they are able to actually, quote, form a more perfect union, but we'll get to that. Now, it's clear that the delegates to the convention will favor a loose union with autonomous states for the most part. So states can do what they want, will be a union, but everybody can kind of run their own business. There were some who wanted a stronger central government, but they were definitely in the minority to begin with. Now, in November of 1777, so while the revolution is still going on, the Articles of Confederation were formally adopted by the Continental Congress, and they were sent to the states for ratification. Basically, the Articles created a national assembly, which was called Congress, but just one, not like our two today, where each state had one vote, and delegates would be selected annually. So every year, they would have to run for re-election, or be selected whatever way the states wanted to, uh, the state legislatures could decide how they wanted to choose their representatives. Those representatives could serve no more than three years out of six. So they could serve three years and then take three years off, or serve every other year, or whatever variation, but only three years out of six. And the presiding president of Congress, who was elected each year by the Congress, was only eligible to serve as president no more than one year out of three. This is because they resent that old office-holding elite from the assemblies from before, and they wanted to guard against creating an office-holding elite by requiring like annual elections and term limits and stuff like that. So votes were decided by a simple majority, except for major questions. If it was a major question, it would require the agreement of nine of the states. There was no executive branch because people feared executive power most of all. They feared another king. Congress was also granted national authority over foreign affairs, matters of war and peace, maintaining the armed forces. Congress could raise loans, issue bills of credit, they could establish a coinage, and they could regulate trade with the native tribes. Congress was also the final authority in any jurisdictional disputes between the states. And there are going to be a lot of them because all those boundaries that the states set up when they first arrive are really vague, but we'll get to that too. It will set up, Congress will set up a postal system as well as a common system of weights and measures. One thing that Congress could not do, it could not tax citizens directly. They could ask their states to tax the citizens, but the states are the only ones that had the right to tax the citizens directly. Any financial burden that the government had would be added up and apportioned among the states. So basically, okay, we spent $500 in the government this year. Who's paying for it? And they would divide that up between the states according to how much surveyed land the states had. So the bigger states would pay more and the smaller states would pay less. Now, having granted all those powers to Congress, the articles also permitted the states to kind of do their own thing. The states could coin their own money. The states could ignore the standards of measurement Congress might establish. I mean, Congress might say, okay, 12 inches is one foot. And Rhode Island might decide, no, 
we think a foot should be 15 inches. That's the way it is in Rhode Island. So they could do that. They could individually, as states, make treaties with other countries. So like Rhode Island could have a treaty with Spain. A state could even, with the, they would have to get consent from Congress, but a state could declare war on a foreign power. So if Rhode Island got mad at Spain, they could declare war on them theoretically. And good luck to them, right? So weakness is deliberately written into the articles because of the fears of this strong central government. Now the articles will explicitly guarantee the sovereignty of the individual states and any powers not directly attributed to the national government were also given to the states. So states have lots of power. Ratification of the articles or adding an amendment required the agreement of all 13 states. So all 13 states have to agree to pass this to get it to go. And then also if they want to add an amendment, all 13 states have to agree on it because it's kind of a big thing. So overall, this document creates a national government that had very specific and sharply limited powers. So it goes to the state legislatures and 12 of them will ratify it almost immediately. But final ratification is held up for almost three years because of Maryland. Maryland was the state with issues. <laughs> Maryland felt that she represented all of the states who did not have claims to land west of the Appalachian Mountains. And Maryland demanded that all the other states who did have claims cede them to Congress for the good of the whole. So what's going on here is that land was currently the new nation's most valuable resource. No one wants to do that. There was land out west and it had been apportioned to some of the other states. Those states wanted to use it to sell so that the states could make money. Let's sell this land to people and they'll go move out there and we'll keep the money, right? But old colonial charters were kind of the cause of the problem. They had been drawn with very little knowledge of the North American geography. Like I said, the boundaries of individual colonies will overlap and the result is a really big snarl of conflicts that was difficult to sort out. There were seven states that claimed western lands as part of their territory, but there were six states who could not. Just in case you were wondering, those were Maryland, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. They could not. The others claimed western lands. So they argued about this for almost three years. And finally, Virginia, who actually had the largest portion of western claims, will promise in 1781 to cede its lands to everyone. And Maryland will agree to ratify. And in March of 1781, the Articles of Confederation will take effect. Under the Articles, however, America was explicitly not a nation, but they called it a firm league of friendship. So come back next week when our tour will visit some problems that are going to crop up with the new Articles of Confederation, including a little dust-up called Shays' Rebellion. Who knew we'd have to write a whole new constitution again so quickly? Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you like the tour, invite a friend along. See you next week.